I was a child when I first heard the song Kumbaya. It might have been when I heard the Weavers at one of their last concerts at Carnegie Hall. It might have been when I heard Joan Baez in her early 20s, her voice achingly pure, perform at Rutgers University while a thunderstorm raged outside. It might have been at any number of gatherings of young people with guitars, swapping songs, old and new, that we sometimes called hoot nannies until a TV show co-opted and ruined the word. In the early 1960s, when I was a young boy discovering the world of folk music and the left-leaning politics with which it was intertwined, Kumbaya was everywhere, a resonant, poignant, powerful song of community and hope, a shared prayer for peace, courage, and endurance. But as the 60s surrendered to the 70s and 80s and the culture lurched rightward, Kumbaya was banished to summer camp. When it finally resurfaced in the zeitgeist, it was no longer a song, because who would be so pathetically naive as to sing it? Kumbaya had become a warning. Don't be a sap. Don't compromise. Don't let your guard down. Don't fall for reconciliation. Don't be seduced by community. Stay strong. Stay tough. Stay cynical. Because we're not exactly going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. It was a sad fate for a song that began as an affirmation of faith. The first known recording of the song was made in 1926 by a folklorist named Robert Winslow Gordon. Searching for songs in the African-American hamlets of the Georgia seacoast, lugging a hand-cranked cylinder recorder, Gibson came upon a man named Wiley, singing a haunting, yearning spiritual in the key of A. O Lord, Wiley sang, come by here. O Lord, come by here. In a community beset by the neo-slavery of sharecropping, the humiliation of Jim Crow, and the organized terror of lynching, come by here was a prayer for deliverance and justice. From the Georgia Sea Islands, come by here spread through the black church. By the late 1930s, its strains could be heard from the fields of Lubbock, Texas, to the Florida Women's Penitentiary. As the civil rights movement gathered force in the 1950s and 1960s, come by here became one of its anthems. In making the leap to the folk music revival spreading swiftly among, among young middle-class whites, Come By Here became Kumbaya. In liner notes to a 1959 album, Pete Seeger wrote that missionaries from the United States had brought Come By Here to Angola, where it was retitled with an African word. In fact, no one has ever found an African word, Kumbaya, that would make any sense in the song. More likely, scholars suspect white listeners simply mistook come by here for kumbaya in the Gullah accent of the Georgia coast. After frequent singing, okay, maybe too frequent singing, in the 1960s, kumbaya 
was chewed up and spat out by a popular culture way too cool for Kumbaya. In the 1988 teen film Heathers, Veronica had a dream that Heather Duke had a funeral where Heather Chandler's spirit appeared and declared, my afterlife is so boring, if I have to sing Kumbaya one more time, I will spew burrito chunks. In the 1993 movie Adam's Family Values, to coerce young Wednesday Adams into participating in summer camp activities, campers and staff burst into a disturbing chorus of kumbaya. The camp owners were later revealed to discriminate on the basis of class, race, and physical appearance. In 2004, the animated sitcom South Park featured Randy leading a chorus singing kumbaya while watching a Walmart burn to the ground. Just the word kumbaya had become pure derision, an object of bipartisan scorn. The candidate of hope and change, Barack Obama, insisted that, quote, the politics of hope is not about holding hands and singing kumbaya. Meanwhile, over at the website rightwingstuff.com, you could browse t-shirts and coffee mugs depicting a drill sergeant choking an anti-war demonstrator and shouting, kiss my kumbaya, hippie. But before we bury kumbaya, listen to Vincent Harding, the scholar and civil rights activist, maybe best known for drafting Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech denouncing the war in Vietnam, delivered at Riverside Church in New York City precisely one year before Dr. King was assassinated. Vincent Harding died last year at the age of 82. Shortly before his death, he was interviewed by Krista Tippett for her show On Being. He told a story I'd never heard before about Kumbaya, and the deaths of civil rights workers James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner in 1964. Whenever somebody jokes about kumbaya, Dr. Harding reflected, my mind goes back to the Mississippi summer experience where the movement folks in Mississippi were inviting co-workers to come from all over the country especially student types, to come and help in the process of voter registration and freedom school teaching and taking great risks on behalf of that state and of this nation. I was deeply involved with the orientation that took place at Williams College in Oxford, Ohio. It was two weeks of orientation and the first week was the week in which, in which Schwerner and Goodman and their beloved brother Jimmy were there. They left that first week and it was during that time that they had left the campus that they were arrested, released, and then murdered. Word came back to us at the orientation that the three of them had not been heard from. And immediately we knew they were probably dead. Bob Moses, the magnificent leader of the orientation and so much of the work in Mississippi, got up and stopped things and told these hundreds of predominantly white young people who had come to do what they felt was good, necessary, citizenship kind of work in Mississippi, he told them about the word we had received. And he also told them 
that if any of them felt at this point they needed to return home or to their schools, we would not think less of them at all, but would be grateful to them for how far they had come. He said, let's take a couple of hours to spend time, whatever you need to do to make this decision. What I found as I moved around the small groups that began to gather to help each other figure out what to do was that in group after group, people were singing Kumbaya. Come by here, my Lord. Somebody is missing, Lord. Come by here. We all need you, Lord. Come by here. I could never laugh at Kumbaya moments after that because I saw them, I saw then that almost no one went home from there. This whole group of people decided that they were going to continue on the path that they had committed themselves to. And a great part of the reason why they were able to do that was because of the strength and the power and the commitment that had been gained through that experience of just singing together Kumbaya. In his book, Reading the Bible Again for the First Time, the late Christian scholar Marcus Borg described three stages of understanding the Bible. The first, pre-critical naivety accepts the biblical narratives without doubt or question. The second, critical thinking, subjects the biblical narratives to the tests of scholarship and skepticism. The third stage, Borg called post-critical naivety. Post-critical naivety. The ability to hear the biblical stories once again as true stories even as one knows that they may not be factually true and that their truth does not depend upon their factuality. To me, post-critical naivety has a far broader meaning and application than just a method of biblical interpretation. Post-critical naivety challenges me not to be too smart for my own good, too savvy, too jaded, too judgmental, too seen it all, too been there, done that. For everything I know or think I know about the world, for every disappointment, for every disillusionment, let me not lose my idealism, my sense of possibility, my sense of wonder. Let me not be afraid to join hands and sing Kumbaya. Amen. Ashe. And blessed be.